too, many are inclined to think here, that the novel Vremya exaggerates dangerously when it compares the effect likely to be produced with that of the fall of Metz and Port Arthur. It certainly brings the end of the Austrians' participation in the war more clearly in sight, but the Austrians will fight for some time yet. What it actually does is to free a large Russian force for the operations against Krakow or to assist in the invasion of Hungary. What is the strength of this force it would be imprudent to divulge, but I can say that it certainly amounts to not less than an army. Anything from 80.000 to 200.000 men. Those who are anxious to arrive at a closer figure can calculate by the fact that the Russians had a 40-mile front around Pajamisl which was strong enough to repulse attacks at all points. Another very full consequence is that all the Galician railway system is now in Russian hands. It makes the transport of troops much easier. One further reflection was suggested to me last night by a very distinguished and influential Russian soldier, holding office under the government. The method which prevailed at Pajamisl was as follows, instead of rushing against the place and losing heavily, we waited and husbanded our forces until the garrison was unable to hold out any longer. That is the method adopted by the Allies. It must in the course of time force Germany to surrender also. Up to now we have held our own against her furious sorties. Soon we shall begin to draw more closely our investing lines. Only one end was possible to Pajamisl. The fate of Germany is equally sure. Now all eyes are fixed on the Dardanelles. The phrase on every lip is, when the fall of Constantinople follows, then Prussia must begin to see that the case is hopeless. But we must not deceive ourselves. For even when her allies are defeated Prussia will still be hard to beat. Pajamisl must not cause us to slacken our effort in any direction or in the slightest degree. What the Russians found special cable to the New York Times. London, April 3rd. The London Times under date Pajamisl. March 30th. Publishes a dispatch from Stanley Washburn, its special correspondent with the Russian armies, who, by courtesy of the Russian High Command, is the first foreigner to visit the great Galician fortress since its fall. He says, Pajamisl is a story of an impregnable fortress two or three times over garrison with patient, haggard soldiers starving in trenches, and sleek, faultlessly dressed officers living off the fat of the land in fashionable hotels and restaurants. The siege started with a total population within the lines of investment of approximately 200.000. Experts estimate that the fortress could have been held with 50.000 or 60.000 men against any forces the Russians could bring against it. It is probable that such supplies as there were were economically expended, with the result that when the push came the situation was at once acute, and the suffering of all classes save the officers became general. First the cavalry and transport horses were consumed, then everything available. Cats were sold at eight shillings, and fair-sized dogs at a sovereign. While the garrison became thin and half-starved, the mode of life of the officers in the town remained unchanged. The Café Siedber was constantly well filled with dilettante officers who gossiped and played cards and billiards and led the life to which they were accustomed in Vienna. Apparently very few shared any of the hardships of their men or made any effort to relieve their condition at the Hotel Royal until the last. The officers had their three meals a day, with fresh meat, cigars, cigarettes, wines, and every luxury, while, as a witness has informed me, their own orderlies and servants begged for a slice of bread. There can be no question that ultimate surrender was due to the fact that the garrison was on the verge of starvation, while the officers' diet was nearly threatened with curtailment. 
Witnesses state that private soldiers were seen actually to fall in the streets from lack of nourishment. The officers are reported to have retained their private thoroughbred riding horses until the day before the surrender, when 2.000 of them were killed to prevent them from falling into the hands of the Russians. A Russian officer of high rank informed me that when he entered the town hundreds of these bodies of beautiful thoroughbred horses were to be seen with half-crazed Austrian and Hungarian soldiers tearing into the bodies with their faces and hands smeared with red blood as they devoured the raw flesh. The Russians were utterly amazed at the casual reception which they received. The Austrian officers showed not the slightest sign of being disconcerted or humiliated at the collapse of their fortress. The first Russian effort was at once to relieve the condition of the garrison and civilians. Owing to the destruction of the bridge this was delayed, but soon with remarkable efficiency distribution depots were opened everywhere and the most pressing needs were somewhat relieved. The entire conduct of the siege on the part of the garrison seems wholly without explanation. The Austrians had throughout plenty of ammunition, and they certainly grossly outnumbered the Russians, yet they made but one recent effort to break out, which occurred three days before the surrender. Civilians inform me that they gladly welcomed the Russians and that the first troops who entered were greeted with cheers, while the garrison was frankly pleased that the siege was over and their troubles at an end. As an example of overfickering it may be stated that General Kuzmanik had 75 officers on his staff while General Artamonov, the acting Russian governor, had but four on his immediate staff. The removal of the prisoners is proceeding with great efficiency. They are going out at the rate of about 10.000 a day. The docility of the captives is indicated by the fact that the Russian guards attached to the prisoners' columns number about one for every hundred prisoners. They are all strung out for miles between the fortress and Lemberg. The prisoners are so eager to get out and to see the last of the war that they follow the instructions of their captors like children. All the civilians as well as prisoners I have talked with are unanimous in their praise of the Russian officers and soldiers, who had shown nothing but kindness and delicacy of feeling since their entrance into the fortress. This consideration strikes me as being utterly wasted on the captured officers, who treat the situation superciliously and are quite complacent in their relations with the Russians. The jesters. By Marion C.O.U.D.H.O.U.A. Smith. Isn't he? The master of the songs of life. May speak at times with less than certain sound. He jests at scars who never felt a wound. So runs his word. Yet on the verge of strife. They jest not who had never known the knife. They tremble who in the waiting ranks are found. While those scarred deep on many a battleground sing to the throbbing of the drum and fife. They laugh who know the open. Fearless breast. The thrust. The steel point and the spreading stain, whose flesh is hardened to the searing test, whose souls are tempered to a high disdain, theirs is the lifted brow, the gallant jest, the long last breath, that holds a victor strain, Lord Kitchener advertises for recruits illustration, this map shows the comparative distances from London of Ostend and of some English towns, London is in the exact center of the map, if the German army were in Manchester, if the German army were in Manchester, Every fit man in the country would enlist without a moment's delay. Do you realize that the German army is now at Ostend, only 125 miles away or 40 miles nearer to London than is Manchester? How much nearer must the Germans come before you do something to stop them? The German army must be beaten in Belgium. The time to do it is now. Will you help? Yes? Then enlist today. God save the king. Facsimile of an advertisement that appeared in the London Times. March 17, 1915. Battle of the Dardanelles The disaster that befell the Allies fleet as the Turks saw it. 
Berlin, March 22nd, via London, 11.33 a.m. The correspondent at Constantinople of the Wolf Bureau telegraphed today a description of the fighting at the Dardanelles on Thursday, March 18th, in which the French battleship Nouvet and two British battleships were sent to the bottom. An abridgment of the correspondent's story follows, the efforts of the Allies to force the Strait of the Dardanelles reached their climax in an artillery duel on Thursday, March 18th, which lasted seven hours. The entire atmosphere around the Turkish forts was darkened by clouds of smoke from exploding shells and quantities of earth thrown into the air by the projectiles of the French and British warships. The earth trembled four miles around. The Allies entered the Strait at 11.30 in the morning, and shelled the town of Chotkale. Four French and five British warships took part in the beginning. This engagement reached its climax at 1.30, when the fire of the Allies was concentrated upon Fort Hamidia and the adjacent fortified positions. The attack of modern marine artillery upon strong land forts presented an interesting as well as a terrifying spectacle. At times the forts were completely enveloped in smoke. At 2 o'clock the Allies changed their tactics and concentrated their fire upon individual batteries but it was evident that they found difficulty in getting the range. Many of the shells fell short, casting up pillars of water, or went over the forts to explode in the town. At 3.15, when the bombardment was at its hottest, the French battleship Nouvet was seen to be sinking at the stern. A moment later her bow swung clear of the water, and she was seen going down. Cheers from the Turkish garrisons and forts greeted the sight. Torpedo boats and other craft of the Allies hurried to the rescue but they were successful in saving only a few men. Besides having been struck by a mine, the boom that was severely damaged above the water line by shell fire. One projectile struck her forward deck. A mast also was shot away and hung overboard. It could be seen that the boom that when she sank was endeavoring to gain the mouth of the strait. This, however, was difficult, owing, apparently, to the fact that her machinery had been damaged. Shortly after the sinking of the boom that a British ship was struck on the deck squarely amidship and compelled to withdraw from the fight. Then another British vessel was badly damaged, and at 3.45 was seen to retire under a terrific fire from the Turkish battery. This vessel ran in toward the shore. For a full hour the Allies tried to protect her with their guns, but it was apparent that she was destined for destruction. Eight effective hits showed the hopelessness of the situation for this vessel. She then withdrew toward the mouth of the Dardanelles, which she reached in a few minutes under a hail of shells. The forts continued firing until the Allies were out of range. This was the first day when the warships attacking the Dardanelles kept within range of the Turkish guns for any considerable length of time. The result for them was terrible. Owing to the excellent marksmanship from the Turkish batteries, the Allies fired on this day 2.000 shells without silencing one shore battery. The result has inspired the Turks with confidence, and they are looking forward to further engagements with calm assurance. Elimination of Mines The London Times naval correspondent writes, in its issue of March 20th, the further attack upon the inner forts at the Dardanelles, which was resumed by the Allied squadrons on Thursday, has resulted, unfortunately, but not altogether unexpectedly, in some loss of ships and gallant lives. The clear and candid dispatch in which the operations are described attributes the loss of the ships to floating mines, which were probably released to drift down with the current in such large numbers that the usual method of evading these machines was unavailable. This danger, it is said, will require special treatment, presumably the area having been swept clear of anchored mines, 
it was not considered necessary to take other precautions than such as were concerned with the movement of the battleships themselves. The satisfactory feature of the operations is that the ships maintained their superiority over the forts, and succeeded in silencing them after a few hours' bombardment. The sinking of the battleships occurred later in the afternoon, and it would seem at a time when a portion of the naval force was making a further advance to cover the mine-sweeping operations. There is nothing in the dispatch which indicates anything but the eventual success of the work, nor that the defenses have proved more formidable than was anticipated. The danger from floating mines may have been somewhat underestimated, but it is one that can be met and is most unlikely to form a decisive factor. Manifestly the Turks, with their German advisers, have done their utmost to a repair, by means of howitzers and field guns, the destruction of the fixed defenses, but it is not likely that any temporary expedients will prove more than troublesome to the passage of the fleet. The determination of the Allies to make a satisfactory ending of the operations is shown by the immediate dispatch of reinforcing ships, and by the fact that ample naval and military forces are available on the spot. Everyone will regret that illness has obliged Vice Admiral Cardin to relinquish the chief command, but this is now in the very capable hands of Vice Admiral Roebuck. British Official Report From the London Times March 20, 1915 after ten days of mine sweeping inside the Dardanelles the British and French fleets made a general attack on the fortresses at the Narrows on Thursday. After about three hours bombardment all the forts ceased firing. Three battleships were lost in these operations by striking mines the French Convent, and the Irresistible and the Ocean. The British crews were practically all saved, but nearly the whole of the men on the Convent perished. The Secretary of the Admiralty issued the following statement last night. Minesweeping having been in progress during the last ten days inside the strait, a general attack was delivered by the British and French fleets yesterday morning upon the fortresses at the Narrows of the Dardanelles. At 10.45 a.m. Queen Elizabeth, Inflexible, Agamemnon, and Lord Nelson bombarded Forts JLTUNV, while Triumph and Prince George fired at batteries FE and H. A heavy fire was opened on the ships from howitzers and field guns. At 12.20 to the French squadron consisting of the Suffren, Galois, Charlemagne, and Bouvet, advanced up the Dardanelles to engage the forts at closer range. Forts J.U.F. and E. replied strongly. Their fire was silenced by the ten battleships inside the strait, all the ships being hit several times during this part of the action. By 1.25 p.m. all forts had ceased firing. Vengeance, Irresistible, Albion, Ocean, Swiftshire and Majestic then advanced to relieve the six old battleships inside the strait, as the French squadron, which had engaged the forts in the most brilliant fashion was passing out. Bouvet was blown up by a drifting mine and sank in 36 fathoms north Ferencoyai village in less than three minutes. At 2.36 p.m. the relief battleships renewed the attack on the forts, which again opened fire. The attack on the forts was maintained while the operations of the mine sweepers continued. At 409 Irresistible quitted the line, listing heavily, and at 550 she sank, having probably struck a drifting mine. At 605, Ocean, also having struck a mine, both vessels sank in deep water, practically the whole of the crews having been removed safely under a hot fire. Illustration, Queen Mary wife of George V. King of Great Britain and Ireland. Photo from Underwood and Underwood. Illustration, The Right Hunt. David Lloyd George the Radical Chancellor of the British Exchequer, upon whom has devolved the task of financing the Great War. Photo by A and R N and Sons. The Galois was damaged by gunfire, 
inflexible had her forward control position hit by a heavy shell, and requires repair. The bombardment of the forts and the mine-sweeping operations terminated when darkness fell. The damage to the forts effected by the prolonged direct fire of the very powerful forces employed cannot yet be estimated, and a further report will follow. The losses of ships were caused by mines drifting with the current which were encountered in areas hitherto swept clear, and this danger will require special treatment. The British casualties in personnel are not heavy, considering the scale of the operations, but practically the whole of the crew of the booms that were lost with the ship. An internal explosion having apparently supervened on the explosion of the mine, the Queen and Implacable, which were dispatched from England to replace ship's casualties in anticipation of this operation, are due to arrive immediately, thus bringing the British fleet up to its original strength. The operations are continuing, ample naval and military forces being available on the spot. On the 16th inst, Vice Admiral Carden, who has been incapacitated by illness, was succeeded in the chief command by Rear Admiral John Michael Derovic, with acting rank of Vice Admiral. The scene in the strait. The London Times publishes this story of an eyewitness, T. Anidios, Egina. March 18th. This is not so much an account of the five hours heavy engagement between the Turkish forts and the Allied ships which has been thought actually within the Dardanelles today as an impression of the bombardment as seen at a distance of 15 miles or so from the top of a high steep hill called Mount Street Elias, at the northern end of Tenedos, over the ridge of Kunkale you plainly see, like a great blue lake, the first reach of the Dardanelles up to the narrow neck between Chanak and Gilidbar. It was up and down in the stretch of water that the largest vessels of the Allied fleet steamed today for over four hours, hurling, with sheets of orange flame from their heavy guns, a constant succession of shells on the forts that guard the narrows at Chanak, while the Turkish batteries, with a frequency that lessened as the day went on, flashed back at them in reply, with the difference that, while the effects of the Allied shells were continually manifest in the columns of smoke and dust that were signs of the damage they had wrought, a great number of the enemy's shots fell in the sea hundreds of yards from the bombarding ships, sending torrents of water towering harmlessly into the air. Not that the successes of the day had been won without cost. I saw several ships, French and British, struck by shells that raised volumes of white smoke, and one of the French squadron is twalling slowly home at this moment down by the head and with a list to port, while, so far as one could make out with a glass, several boatloads of men were being taken off her. The ships left their stations between the Turkish and Asiatic coasts and Tenedos early this morning and by 11 they were steaming in line up the Dardanelles. It was 11.45 when the first notable hit was made by an English ship. I could see eight vessels, apparently all battleships, lying in line from the entrance up the strait. The ship furthest up appeared to be the Queen Elizabeth, and I think it was she that fired the shot which exploded the powder magazine at Chanak. A great balloon of white smoke sprang up in the midst of the magazine which leaked out from a fierce, red flame, and reached a great height. When the flame had disappeared the dense smoke continued to grow till it must have been a column hundreds of feet high. In the five minutes that followed this shot three more shells from the Queen Elizabeth fell practically on the same spot, and two minutes later yet another by the side of the smoking ruins. There were now eight battleships, all pre-dreadnoughts, left at Tenedos and at noon six of them started off in line ahead toward the strait. The English ships already within were passing further up and went out of sight. The bombarding ships were steaming constantly up and down, turning at each end of the stretch, which is about a couple of miles long. 
a long thin veil of black smoke was drifting slowly westward from the fighting, at about 130 Erankui village, standing high on the Asiatic side, received a couple of shells, at 145 a division of eight destroyers in line steamed into the entrance of the strait, and a little later the last two battleships from Tenedos joined, the Dublin patrolling outside. An hour later the most striking effect was produced by a shell falling on a Fort Apkilid bar, which evidently exploded in other magazine. A huge mass of heavy jet black smoke gradually rose till it towered high above the cliffs on the European and Asiatic sides. It ballooned slowly out like a gigantic genie rising from a fisherman's ball. By now the action was slackening, and at 3.45 five ships were slowly steaming homeward from the entrance. At 4.30 there were still eight vessels in the strait but the forts had practically ceased to fire. The action was over for the day. The result had been the apparent silencing of several Turkish batteries, and those terrific explosions at the forts at Chanak and Gilidbar, the ultimate effect of which remains to be seen when the attack is renewed tonight. For Chanak is burning. Official story of two sea fights from the London Times. March 3, 1915. Admiralty. March 3, 1915. The following dispatch has been received from Vice Admiral Sir David Beattie, KCBNVODSO commanding the 1st Battle Cruiser Squadron, reporting the action in the North Sea on Sunday, the 24th of January, 1915, HMS Princess Royal, February 2nd, 1915. Sir, I had the honor to report that at daybreak on January 24th, 1915, the following vessels were patrolling in company, the Battle Cruiser's Lion. Capt. Alfred E. Ann Chatfield, CBO Flying My Flag, Princess Royal, Capt. Osmond de B. Brock, Aide de Camp, Tiger, Capt. Henry B. Pelly, MBO, New Zealand, Capt. Lionel Halsey, CMG Aide de Camp, Flying the Flag of Rear Admiral Sir Archibald Moore, KCBCBO and Indomitable, Capt. Francis W. Kennedy, The Light Cruiser Southampton, Flying the Broad Pennant of Commodore William E. Goodenough, MBO, Nottingham, Capt. Charles B. Miller, Birmingham, Capt. Arthur A. Andoff, and Lostoff, Capt. Theobald W. B. Kennedy, were disposed on my port beam. Commodore T. Reginald White Tyrewood, C.B. and Arthusa, Aurora, Capt. Wilmot S. Nicholson, and Daunted, Capt. Francis G. St. John, MBO, Arthusa and the destroyer flotillas were ahead. At 7.25 a.m. the flash of guns was observed south-southeast. Shortly afterward a report reached me from Aurora that she was engaged with enemy ships. I immediately altered course to south-southeast, increased to 22 knots, and ordered the light cruisers and flotillas to chase south-southeast to get in touch and report movements of enemy. This order was acted upon with great promptitude. Indeed my wishes had already been forestalled by the respective senior officers and reports almost immediately followed from Southampton, Parthusa, and Aurora as to the position and composition of the enemy, which consisted of three battle cruisers and Blue Ecker, six light cruisers, and a number of destroyers, steering northwest. The enemy had altered course to southeast. From now onward the light cruisers maintained touch with the enemy, and kept me fully informed as to their movements. The battle cruisers worked up to full speed, steering to the southward. The wind at the time was northeast, light, with extreme visibility. At 7.30 a.m. the enemy were sighted on the port bow steaming fast, steering approximately southeast, distant 14 miles. Owing to the prompt reports received we had attained our position on the quarter of the enemy, 
and so altered course to southeast parallel to them, and settled down to a long stern chase, gradually increasing our speed until we reached 28.5 knots. Great credit is due to the engineer staffs of New Zealand and indomitable these ships greatly exceeded their normal speed. At 8.52 a.m. as we had closed to a within 20.000 yards of the rear ship, the battle cruisers maneuvered to keep on a line of bearing so that guns would bear, and Lyon fired a single shot, which fell short. The enemy at this time were in single line ahead, with light cruisers ahead and a large number of destroyers on their starboard beam. Single shots were fired at intervals to test the range, and at 9.09 a.m. Lyon made her first hit on the Blue Ecker. Number 4 in the line, the Tiger opened fire at 9.20 a.m. on the rear ship. The Lion shifted to number 3 in the line, at 18.000 yards, this ship being hit by several salvos. The enemy returned our fire at 9.14 a.m. Princess Royal, on coming into a range, opened fire on Blue Ecker. The range of the leading ship being 17.500 yards, at 9.35 a.m. New Zealand was within range of Blue Ecker which had dropped somewhat astern, and opened fire on her. Princess Royal shifted to the third ship in the line, inflicting considerable damage on her. Our flotilla cruisers and destroyers had gradually dropped from a position brought on our beam to our port quarter, so as not to foul our range with their smoke, but the enemy's destroyers threatening attack. The Meteor and M Division passed ahead of us, kept the Han, H. Mead, DSO handling this division with conspicuous ability. About 9.45 a.m. the situation was as follows, Blue Ecker, the fourth in their line, already showed signs of having suffered severely from gunfire, their leading ship and number three were also on fire, Lion was engaging number one, Princess Royal number three, New Zealand number four, while the Tiger, which was second in our line, fired first at their number one, and when interfered with by smoke, at their number four. The enemy's destroyers emitted vast columns of smoke to screen their battle cruisers, and under cover of this the latter now appeared to have altered course to the northward to increase their distance, and certainly the rear ships hauled out on the port quarter of their leader, thereby increasing their distance from our line. The battle cruisers, therefore, were ordered to form a line of bearing north-northwest, and proceed at their utmost speed. Their destroyers then showed evident signs of an attempt to attack. Lion and Tiger opened fire on them, and caused them to retire and resume their original course. The light cruisers maintained an excellent position on the port quarter of the enemy's line, enabling them to observe and keep touch, or attack any vessel that might fall out of the line. At 10.48 a.m. the Blue Ecker, which had dropped considerably astern of enemy's line, hauled out to port, steering north with a heavy list, on fire, and apparently in a defeated condition. I consequently ordered Indomitable to attack enemy breaking northward. At 10.54 a.m. submarines were reported on the starboard bow, and I personally observed the wash of a periscope to points on our starboard bow. I immediately turned to port. At 11.03 a.m. an injury to the Lion being reported as incapable of immediate repair. I directed Lion to shape course northwest. At 11.20 a.m. I called the attack alongside. Shifting my flag to her at about 11.35 a.m. I proceeded at utmost speed to rejoin the squadron, and met them at noon retiring north-northwest. I boarded and hoisted my flag on Princess Royal at about 12.20 p.m. when kept. Brock acquainted me of what had occurred since the lion fell out of the line, namely, 
that Blueacre had been sunk and that the enemy battle cruisers had continued their course to the eastward in a considerably damaged condition. He also informed me that a Zeppelin and a seaplane had endeavored to drop bombs on the vessels which went to the rescue of the survivors of Blueacre. The good seamanship of Lute, Commander Cyril Callaghan, HMS Attack, in placing his vessel alongside the Lion and subsequently the Princess Royal, enabled the transfer of flag to be made in the shortest possible time. At 2 p.m. I closed Lion and received a report that the starboard engine was giving trouble owing to priming, and at 3.38 p.m. I ordered Indomitable to take her in tow, which was accomplished by 5 p.m. The greatest credit is due to the captains of Indomitable and Lion for the seamanlike manner in which the Lion was taken in tow under difficult circumstances. The excellent steaming of the ships engaged in the operation was a conspicuous feature. I attach an appendix giving the names of various officers and men who specially distinguished themselves. Where all did well it is difficult to single out officers and men for special mention. And as Lion and Tiger were the only ships hit by the enemy, the majority of these I mentioned belonged to those ships. I had the honor to be, Sir, your obedient servant, signed David Beatty, Vice Admiral, Officers, Commander Charles A. Fountain, HMS Lion, Lute, Commander Evan C. Bunbury. HMS Lion, Lute, Frederick T. Peters, HMS Meteor, Lute, Charles M. Archbert, HMS Lion, Engineer Commander Donald P. Green, HMS Lion, Engineer Commander James L. Sands, HMS Southampton, Engineer Commander Thomas H. Turner, HMS, New Zealand, Engineer Lute, Commander George Priest, HMS Lion, Engineer Lute, Albert Nothi, HMS Indomitable. Surgeon Probationer James A. Sterling, RNVRHMS Meteor, Mr. Joseph H. Burton, Gunner THMS Lion, Chief Carpenter Frederick E. Daly, HMS Lion, Petty Officers and Men, P. or J.W. Kemet, ON 186.788, Lion, ABH Davis, ON 184.526, Tiger, ABHF Griffin, ONJ 14.160, Princess Royal, ABPS Livingstone, ON 234.328, Lion, ABH Robison, ON 209.112, Tiger, ABGHL Sealer, ON 156.802, Lion, Boy, First Centiliter FGH Bamford, ONJ 26.598, Tiger, Boy, First Centiliter JF Rogers, ONJ 28.329, Tiger, Chapter E. RR First Centiliter ER Hughes, ON 268.999, Indomitable, Chapter E, RR Two 2D Centiliters WB Dand, ON 270.648, New Zealand, Chapter E, AR W Gillespie, ON 270.080, Meteor, Magn, AJ Cannon, ON 175.440, Lion, Magn, ECF Grave. ON 288.231, Lion, Chapter SDKR, P. Callaghan, ON 278.953, Lion, Chapter SDKR, A.W. Ferris, ON 175.824, Lion, Chapter SDKR, J.E. James, ON 174.232, New Zealand, Chapter SDKR, W.E. James, ON 294.406, Indomitable, Chapter SDKR, Jake Eating, RFRON 165.732, Meteor, SDKR, P, 
or M-flood, RFRON 153.418, Meteor, SDKR, T, or T.W. Hardy, ON 292.542, Indomitable, SDKR, T, or A.J. Sims, ON 276.502, New Zealand, SDKR, T, or S. West Hawaii, RFRON 300.938, Meteor, Act, LDG, SKR, J. Blah.